Welcome to episode three of Built Blocks, the podcast about cities, architecture, buildings, the built environment, and everything in between. This episode, we're speaking with Brian Libby, a journalist and critic living in Portland, Oregon. Among the magazines and newspapers he has contributed to include The New York Times, The Atlantic, Dwell, City Lab, Metropolis, and Architectural Record. Brian is also a book author, filmmaker, and runs the popular Portland Architecture blog. In this episode, which tends to be a little Portland-centric, but I think informative for anyone listening in, Brian talks about the current housing crisis here, some of his favorite current projects on the books, efforts behind the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, and what it's like to write for the New York Times. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start out um, talking about Portland in general and and, and what's happening here. Um, you know, as you know, a lot of the older historical homes and neighborhoods are, are being demolished, and there are um, lots of larger single-family homes coming in, um, not super architecturally pleasing. Um, it seems to be you know, that the character of the neighborhoods are changing. But I'm wondering, is this, is this just another blip on the radar or, or another, you know, the, another evolution on, on the Portland skyline? What, what's going on here? Well, in some ways, I think it's uh, just one of those periods that crop up every couple of decades or something where a lot gets torn down and a lot gets built. But at the same time, it seems historically uh, concerning in a way, too. There are something like 400 homes being torn down in Portland uh, on a yearly basis now. And uh, uh, that doesn't even really do justice to the real number because there are a lot of houses that that uh, uh, see 90% of it torn down but get called a remodel. And so it's it, it may be way worse than, than several hundred homes being torn down. Uh, and, and that's a scary thing. And uh, the city has taken some steps, of course, to try and slow down the rate of it. Uh, uh, the city council passed a, a, a demolition uh, a reconstruction bill that uh, uh, forces people to deconstruct their homes instead of just, you know, uh, tear through them and send it all to the landfill. And so that might help a little bit. And there have been some other ideas about uh, how we might um, uh, slow the rate of demolition a little bit. And then there's the the related question that you mentioned of of what gets built after something is torn down. And, and we've all seen these situations where there's a, a pretty ugly three-story house that, that towers over some, some older single-story house. And, and that's not quite right either. And so uh, one of the leading local preservation organizations, Restore Oregon, for example, has introduced uh, some uh, infill design standards that we hope will uh, uh, get passed at the city level. And, and uh, uh, if you do tear something down, at least we can make you um, deconstruct it in a sustainable way and build something with with some reasonable amount of character. So even those measures may not uh, completely stop the epidemic, but at least we can try and slow it down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's you, you bring up the word epidemic, and and it just it it seems like it's it's happening more than it has in the past five years, you know, decade or so. Yeah, it seems like uh, uh, I think often I think of uh, economies as kind of like a campfire uh, and real estate uh, being related to this, of course. Um, I think of a campfire that you want to kind of keep at a steady burn, um, but it's kind of a problem if it gets too too small of a fire, but it's 
also a problem if it gets to be too big of a fire. And uh, uh, economics can can cause problems at either end. And and I think we have a real booming economy now, which is great in a lot of ways. You know, I'm a freelance journalist, and journalists are often a kind of canary in the coal mine for the state of the economy. Uh, architects are too, and and so. Uh, I, as a journalist, and a lot of the architects I write about are real happy to have uh, lots of business and, and be busy. But at the same time, uh, you know, when an economy really starts to boom, uh, we can see how it can really crash sometimes. And also it can create some uh, financial incentives to do things that we don't actually want our society to do. Yeah, and, and that brings up a good point, too. Um, the, the, the flip side of that is there's also a lot of really, really awesome architecture being designed and built in Portland in the last five to 10 years that I haven't seen in quite a long time. Um, you know, it's, it's almost a renaissance. There's, 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 yeah, sure. There's ugly buildings, but there's also some, some really nice stuff being built. Do you want to um, give us an overview of, 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 you know, what's, what's out there and, and what your take is on some of the nicer projects? Yeah, I'm really excited about some of the buildings that are going up. And uh, in a lot of ways, Portland's path to greater density is an exciting one. Uh, 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 according to Metro, even though there are a lot of demolitions of single family homes and other kind of buildings, we have lots of vacant land that's really still available. And when a city becomes more dense, it becomes more alive and, and full of energy. And so that's exciting. And it gives architects, like you say, a lot of opportunity. And uh, uh, I'm really excited about what I'm seeing from local firms these days. Uh, um, for example, uh, uh, the Portland Art Museum has a, a show right now, a retrospective of, of uh, the most acclaimed architect of our generation, Brad Clopeville and his firm Allied Works. And they're starting to have a presence in Portland again. Uh, they had sort of skyrocketed to acclaim a little over 14 or 15 years ago with the widening Kennedy building. And then they had... Uh, had a mostly a presence outside of Portland, designing art museums in places like St. Louis and New York and Seattle, and, and not having much work done in, in Portland proper. But that started to change again. So it's exciting to see really our most acclaimed firm doing significant work here again. Uh, last year, we saw the Pacific Northwest College of Art open up in the renovated uh, early 20th century 511 Broadway building. And now we're also seeing Allied Works uh, making an impact with a renovation of the Pietro Belusky designed Oregonian building from the 1950s. And, and so those are both renovations to existing buildings, but they're pretty exciting. And I'm hoping that Allied Works will get to do uh, some more um, new construction in Portland as well. But then if you're talking about Allied Works, I think one of the most exciting phenomenon in Portland architecture over the last three or four years has been the proliferation of young firms that that came out of uh, Brad Cloakville's film, Allied Works, that these young architects who got their start working for Brad Cloakville and have kind of world-class talent, but are now running their own firms. Uh, uh, maybe the best example would be a firm called Lever Architecture. And uh, I remember interviewing Brad Cloakville about a decade ago, and he was kind of bragging to me that that he had poached an architect from what may be the world's greatest architecture firm, uh, Herzog and Demuron, you know, which had designed the, the Bird's Nest Stadium in China and all kinds of great world-class architecture. And, you know, Brad Cloakville several years ago was able to get this guy from Herzog and Demeron to come to Portland and work for him. And then eventually uh, this guy, uh, whose name is Thomas Robinson, formed his own firm, Lever Architecture. And uh, they started to arrive on the scene uh, in the last couple of years with a project I really liked uh, called Union Way uh, in, in the downtown area, right across from Powell's Books. And it was just this wonderful kind of ingenious 
uh, reimagination of a kind of single story early 20th century automobile um, uh, repair shop. And, and they carved this uh, kind of pedestrian spine down the middle of the building and and filled it with all these kind of micro-sized retail shops. And uh, so that was a great project. And, and Lever Architecture, this firm, has continued to do some really exciting work. Uh, for example, there's a home tour this weekend uh, called the Dwell Home Tour from Dwell Magazine. And uh, there's a Lever Architecture designed house that uh, I wrote about last year for the New York Times that is really cool. It's, a, it's actually a, a, a classic kind of Portland Foursquare house uh, dating to the early party of the 20th century. But Lever Architecture did this really um, interesting move, which is that they kept the existing old house intact, but they put this third floor addition on it that is um, wildly different from the old house below it. It's this kind of glass cube sitting on top of an old house. And so that's another example of ingenious design and, and design thinking. And so there are a few other firms like that as well. Uh, I'm also a big fan of another Brad Klopfeld disciple who designs a lot of great houses named uh, Ben Wechter. His firm is called Wechter Architecture. And uh, uh, I first became aware of this guy a few years ago with a house he did called the Z House, which was really, really uh, ingenious as well. It, it, it arranged the whole house uh, around this stairway and each of the rooms would be off this stairway at, at, at half level intervals. And so you'd walk up like half a stairway and there would be the living room and then you'd walk up another half stairway and then would be the kitchen. And so, uh, this guy just really has an eye for design and, a, and, a, a kind of way of reinventing, uh, everyday spaces. And so I'm excited about that. And, uh, then you've got a firm that has no connection to Brad Clopeville, like work, works partnership that is doing a lot of uh, really exciting work around town. Uh, they're doing a, a couple of buildings at the Burnside Bridgehead that are really exciting. Um, and uh, both they and some other firms are really starting to embrace uh, something that is becoming kind of an international phenomenon these days, which is uh, timber framing uh, of buildings. And I think it's a really exciting time here in Portland and also uh, internationally because of the kind of new generation of timber framed buildings that are happening. So really there is a lot of exciting stuff happening in the city. And uh, um, I've only mentioned a couple of firms, but there's so much going on and there's a real leadership happening with sustainable architecture as well. And so that's exciting. And uh, you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's a neat time to be following architects in Portland. Yeah, I, you you mentioned Union Way, and that's probably one of my favorite projects in the last few years. I mean, I, I love it because it it takes an unloved or unused existing space, and it's 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 a small scale. Well, I wouldn't say small scale, but it's it's not a huge project. So I like the fact that um, you know through use of, of of space and and it's um, you know using something that wasn't there before. How how hard do you think it is to get something like that designed and built? I think it really depends on the client, the the developer you're working with. Uh, uh, Lever Architecture has been lucky in that they've done a few projects now with this developer called Project PDX. Uh, the owner of the firm is named Tom Cody, and he had been involved with uh, a larger developer, Girding Eveland Development, in the uh, past few years, and was involved in kind of big landmark projects near, like the Burnside, uh, uh, like the. Burnside Bridgehead project uh, near Powell's books. And this this developer, Tom Cody, when he formed his own firm, Project 
his own development firm really wanted to do more kind of high design, smaller scale projects. And that's precisely what's happened. And so Union Way is really uh, so Portland in so many ways. It's it's absolutely festooned with wood, which is kind of a signature look for, for Oregon, uh, maybe almost a cliche, but something I think we shouldn't shy away from because it's a, you know, beautiful natural material. And, and also, like you say, it's a, it's a renovation that makes really smart use of a, of a kind of unremarkable automobile repair shop, uh, uh, the kind of building that probably would have been okay to torn down, to, to tear down and still is something that has been completely reimagined in a, in a great way. And uh, it's also full of all these small businesses. And I think uh, Portland is really an entrepreneurial, small business-based economy. We don't generate a lot of Fortune 500 companies. I think Nike is often our only Fortune 500 company or maybe a couple of other stragglers around there. And so, you know, Portland is a place to to start a small business, not to grow one into, a, uh, you know, a company with shareholders. And so Union Way is is great uh, in how it reinvents that building, but also it's wonderful in that it could not be more quintessentially Portland in its in its personality. Um, I mean, do you think something like that's possible? I mean, I know because it's such a dense area, but I'm thinking, um, you know, that outer that outer suburb ring of Portland. So you've got downtown, but then you've got some of the smaller neighborhoods. Uh, well, not small neighborhoods, but just the the different um, neighborhoods of Portland, and maybe even you know beyond Portland, you've got downtown Milwaukee and those kinds of places. Do you, do you see those those areas of of the city? Um, changing as well and maybe maybe doing some of these small scale type of projects there too. I do see that and I think uh the the demographics and the economics are changing. Of course uh um you know a, a generation ago we saw a lot of the baby boom generation or a lot of middle class people move out of the city into the suburbs and then in the last decade we've seen a lot of people moving back from the suburbs to the city and so uh suburbs are today neither this enclave of of just uh you know upper class people and they're not uh the poorhouse either and and uh uh, I think what's most exciting about the suburbs in the Portland area is that because of the urban growth boundary, they're really adding density. And, uh, you know, for example, I went out to Beaverton last week and had pizza with some of my old high school buddies. And it was wonderful to see how much of Beaverton is actually quite walkable right now. And and granted, there's still these islands of walkability where you've got to get in your car and still drive in between them. But uh, whether it's Milwaukee, like you say, or Beaverton or Tigard or Gresham, uh, all these places are are adding uh, little high streets or or retail areas where people can walk, and a lot of them are transit connected as well. Uh, uh, you mentioned Milwaukee, and of course, what's really been a game changer for Milwaukee has been the arrival of the Max Light Rail uh, train, and so hopefully they will continue to expand Max and connect the city with these suburbs. And I like the idea that someday you can you can live in downtown Portland, but you can also live in these suburbs and, and, uh, walk to the train and then walk from the train to work. And, and, uh, um, you know, I, I love Oregon so much, but, uh, I remember, uh, earlier in my life, in my twenties living in New York city and, uh, you know, I never owned a car when I lived in New York and it was great. I just felt like I get, could get everywhere so much more easily. And, and yes, it's great having a car to, to go to the beach or go to the mountains or, or maybe even to go to target on the weekend or something. But, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, pedestrian walkability is, something that just brings a higher quality of life to everyone, whether you're uh, in an upper or lower income bracket. And so that's great to see. And it's it's not to say that 
Uh, I don't drive out to Beaverton and see uh, a kind of wave of, of, of chain restaurants and Applebee's and, and all that stuff. And sometimes uh, it can still seem like an ocean of strip malls and all that and, and so much terrible traffic in the suburbs. But I'm, I'm optimistic and excited about how the urban growth boundary in particular is, is densifying our suburbs and making them uh, more livable in the process. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of our huge advantages here, and other other cities don't don't have something like that. So it's just sprawl from downtown outward. There's no control um, at all. Um, so so speaking of other cities, you know, I know Portland. It hasn't been criticized, but it's been it's been noted that we don't really have um, you know a Transamerica pyramid like San Francisco or um, you know the Sears building, Chicago, that sort of thing. And I've, I think I might've read this, something that you wrote that our, our architectural gem is, is, is Mount hood. It's all, you know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's the, it's, it's an, it's, you know, a a natural um, architecture figure that kind of looms over, over us. Do you, do you think Mount hood has an influence on how things are designed in Portland And, and does Portland have a distinct natural built environment that kind of forces designers and architects to design a specific way? Well, I could answer that in a couple of ways. I think one thing is that Mount Hood has affected local architecture in that uh, one of the reasons we seem to have height regulations for our downtown skyscrapers is that people are concerned about preserving views of Mount Hood. And at the same time, I think architects who grow up here also were influenced in general by the beautiful Oregon landscape and wanted to think of their buildings as as existing in landscapes and, and in a natural context, even if they're in the city in some way. And so, and so uh, it, it does have an impact. And, and also, I think the lack of uh, a kind of landmark, universally recognizable building like the Transamerica Pyramid or the Space Needle in Seattle may also be reflective of, of Portland's kind of identity as a city. Uh, I often go back to something I remember hearing said by an urban studies professor at Portland State University, uh, Carl Abbott. And uh, this was uh, years ago he said this. I think it was in a Willamette Week uh, story comparing Seattle and Portland. And, and what uh, this guy said was that um, even though there are exceptions to this rule, and, and you'll start to think of them as soon as I say this, uh, generally ocean port cities and river cities tend to have different personalities. And, and the theory here was that ocean port cities like Seattle or New York City, for example, have more of a desire to show the world how big and important and ambitious they are. And so those are the kind of cities that generate skyscrapers that are big showy landmarks and so forth, or, or monuments like the, the Space Needle, and that uh, river cities tend to be a little bit more insular, but a little bit more comfortable in their own skin. And so I like to think that uh, even though I wouldn't mind it if Portland had some kind of universally recognizable landmark that could become our logo or that, that kind of thing, at the same time, I like the idea that, that Portland doesn't necessarily need some kind of architectural icon, that whether it's Mount Hood or just the sense of collectiveness uh, of our whole downtown fabric or, or, or all of us in it together. Uh, I like the idea that Portland doesn't necessarily need one building that kind of stands head and shoulders above the rest. And I think, you know, we're a very democratic city. Uh, we're a city where our neighborhood organizations have a real say in city council and, and where we have a weak mayoral system in city council where, where no one voice rises above the fray. And so, um, you know, you could look at a building like the Portland building, even though it's disliked as much as it's liked and, and, you know, venture some guesses as to what our most famous building may be. 
but at the same time, I, I'm at peace with the fact that we don't have one singular building that um, becomes the shorthand for the city. Yeah, and I think that's kind of our legacy is that we, we don't have one. That's what makes us, I think, Portland a little different. You know, I think of the cities that I go to around the world that I love the most, uh, and some of those cities don't have one obvious thing either. Like, uh, I'm just in love with Amsterdam, for example, and there's no one building that you go to in Amsterdam. What's incredible is the fabric of buildings, all these kind of tall, skinny buildings that are clustered together uh, because of, uh, you know, what the tax rules were in Holland uh, during their golden age. You know, they were taxed on their width. And so uh, there were, you ended up with all these skinny buildings. And, and, you know, there's no one building in Amsterdam that stands above the rest. But Amsterdam is one of the coolest cities I've ever been to. Or, uh, you know, earlier this spring, I went to Prague and was just blown away. Like I was just sort of muttering expletives to myself as I walked <laughs> around every corner going, you know, holy crap. And, and you know, I'd look at some building and it and it wasn't even a landmark. It could have been just like an accounting office or something. But the urban fabric of Prague was so astonishingly beautiful. That was my takeaway. And I could say the same about, you know, Vienna or Kyoto, Japan, or any number of cities uh, that are absolutely beautiful, but don't have one standout. Uh, sometimes I think when you are a city that has kind of one lone standout building, often these cities are are really big and, and aren't as kind of wonderful and livable as, as some of these smaller cities with the great urban fabric are. And, and I would sign a kind of uh, uh, forward the idea that um, it's better to have a, a wonderful patchwork quilt than it is to have one great square on the quilt. That's, that's a good point. And, I, you know, I, I think of Portland. I think and Portland's a good example. So is Amsterdam. Is maybe um, cities aren't going to be known for their architecture. Maybe they're going to be known for their brand. I mean, as soon as you said Amsterdam, I thought, oh, biking, you know, biking, the, the biking infrastructure and the architecture. And in Portland, when you tell people about Portland, the first thing they say is probably not, oh, I recognize the city or the skyline. It's mostly, oh, Portland, beer, coffee, roses, and keep Portland weird. Um, I, wonder yeah. if, I wonder if city brands are, are, I don't know if they're maybe replacing architectural icons, but I feel like city branding is becoming more of a, I guess, a thing now. City branding and also I think the public is becoming more adept at, at looking at sit, how cities themselves are designed. Uh, I remember doing a Q&A with uh, a local design guru here in Portland, uh, the owner of Ziba Design, uh, Zorab Vasuji. And uh, I remember asking him in an interview what his favorite building was. And, and he said he didn't have one and that uh, the best thing, the best designed thing in Portland was Portland and that uh, our collection of buildings, our urban fabric and our, our 200 foot blocks and that sort of thing were, were collectively great and add in, you know, the, the light rail and the streetcars. And, and uh, you know, if you think about it, it's, it, it, if you're going to have something that is a great design, why not have it be a city that is a great design and not a building? And you see people becoming more aware of this through things like, uh, for example, Monocle magazine does a, a ranking of uh, the top design cities in the world. And, and people start to think, I think, of uh, not only Amsterdam, but cities like Copenhagen and Vienna uh, and, and Portland and, and certain other American cities as being well-designed cities overall. And, and, and that's pretty attractive. Uh, I'll take that over the Space Needle. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good one. Um, so um, 
uh, speaking of, of, of buildings and loved buildings and, and, you know, buildings that represent a city, let's talk about the Memorial Coliseum. Um, I know you've, you've, you have a deep history with it. Um, you know, you've been working hard to preserve it and keep it on the register. Can you walk us through a little bit of its history and then, and then where you came in and, and, and what's happening with it? You bet. Well, Memorial Coliseum, actually, it's officially called Veterans Memorial Coliseum now, but I still like to call it by its old name, uh, original name, uh, Memorial Coliseum. Uh, it was completed in 1960 and is really part of the, the golden age of Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, one of America's top design firms of the 20th century. And this was really completed in, in their best period, uh, the late 50s and early 60s. And uh, I think it's a kind of forgotten masterpiece of American architecture. It's, uh, as best I can tell, the only only building in the world uh, that uh, the only arena in the world that has a 360 degree view to the outside. So, for example, I once went to a Blazer exhibition game at Memorial Coliseum, and I watched the sunset over the entire downtown Portland skyline from my seats, and I could do a kind of pirouette or a 360 and, and look out the entire. Uh, 360 through the glass to the outside. Um, but what's partially tragic is the view uh, to the outside from your seats, the, the very thing that makes the Coliseum architecturally really special, has been blocked away from most of its history in that there's a fabric curtain that, that blocks the view and makes it a kind of traditional black box arena. And that really became the norm. And so, so many people I, I know who I grew up with in Portland and so forth uh, don't even know that this feature exists in the Coliseum. And so that's been a stumbling block. And then uh, I came in uh, in 2009 when the building was threatened with demolition to make way for a, ma a minor league baseball stadium. And uh, we had a really uh, robust grassroots effort that I think surprised the mayor at the time, Sam, Adam Sam Adams. And uh, um, he abandoned plans to tear down the building. Uh, but it's kind of been in limbo ever since. Uh, I often tell people that we feel like on the preservation side that uh, we went into halftime with the lead, but then it's remained halftime for seven years. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, it's one thing to save the building from demolition, but it's another thing to actually get it restored. And, and that, that second part has been what's most difficult. And um, uh, city council almost passed a, a restoration uh package in 2012, three years after we saved it from demolition. And for various political reasons, it didn't come to a vote. And and then um, for the last four years, uh, the mayor, Charlie Hales, has uh, been working kind of behind the scenes. And initially, he, he said, uh, I think we ought to either go big or go home and that uh, we need to do a more ambitious restoration of the Coliseum and find a way to get that done or we need to get serious about tearing it down. And so he he started working behind the scenes trying to convince Nike to become a private partner. And uh, Nike even produced a $120 million restoration design plan that was pretty exciting. It uh, removed the first few rows of seats and made them kind of temporary seating in order to squeeze a 200-foot regulation indoor track uh, in the building. And, and uh, it was pretty exciting. Uh, um, but ultimately, Nike was being asked to come up with too much of the bill. I think they were being asked for something like $80 million and uh, Nike declined. And so we're kind of back in the drawing board in some ways, but uh, uh, we're very excited because we were success. We were successful this year in, in applying for um, what's called a national treasure des designation from the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and so the building received that honor in June, and so we're very excited about that. 
And we're hoping with a new mayor coming on board with Ted Wheeler that we're going to be able to put through um, some kind of restoration package. Uh, it probably won't be the as expensive as the $120 million package that uh, Mayor Hales is looking at with Nike. Um, but we think it'll really substantially transform the building and get people excited. And, and uh, luckily also um, during this time, uh, of the Hales administration, the mayor also commissioned a study last year that shows that uh, actually Memorial Coliseum, even in its disrepair right now, is is turning a modest profit. And uh, the study showed that at any of the levels of res- restoration, even the most modest ones, uh, the building would turn an operational profit. And so um, we're trying to convince the city that it makes sense to restore this building. And uh, another thing their study shows is that there's no other venue of this particular size in the city. So the Coliseum fulfills a particular size niche of about eight to 10,000 people. Like the, the downtown venues, like the Schnitzer Concert Hall and the Keller Auditorium, top out at about 3,000 seats. And then you have the Moda Center now, where the Blazers moved to 20 years ago, that holds about 20,000 seats. And so the Coliseum does have a kind of niche role to play. For example, there's an indoor version of Cirque du Soleil that came to Portland last year and had a two-week sold-out run at Memorial Coliseum. And the operators uh, were pretty open about the fact that if the Coliseum hadn't been available to rent, then they wouldn't have come to Portland. And so I think that's an example of the kind of niche role that the building can play on a kind of, um, you know, uh, city level. And, and so uh, we're just hoping that um, we'll be able to convince Mayor Ted Wheeler and city council to put through a restoration package next year. And uh, we're really excited that the National Trust for Historic Preservation is really a partner with us in the Friends of Memorial Coliseum on this front right now. Like uh, when the building received its National Treasure designation, it was not just kind of a title that it received, but it's also a, a kind of an expression of a long-term commitment from the National Trust to get involved in trying to find a solution. And so um, we feel like it, when we can go to Ted Wheeler and say, you have a building that is clearly on an international level, very significant and a kind of masterwork. And you have the city's own studies showing that it's operationally profitable, even in its disrepair, and that it would be even more profitable when you um, fix it up. And so we hope we have a kind of slam dunk case. Um, but, you know, it's still tough. Uh, there are a lot of priorities out there. You know, there's a kind of affordable housing crisis and a homeless crisis in Portland. And uh, the Coliseum became threatened with demolition again last fall when uh, my least favorite member of Portland City Council, Steve Novick, introduced a measure to tear down the Coliseum to build affordable housing. And uh, it was kind of an empty idea from the start. Uh, I interviewed a couple of urban planners and affordable housing advocates who said that the Coliseum site was a terrible place for affordable housing. You know, there's none none of the things that young families and affordable housing complexes need, like a schools and grocery stores and all that stuff. So it's kind of a non-starter to think of tearing the Coliseum down for affordable housing. But I think it does speak to the fact that we have a lot of things like affordable housing that are real needs. And so convincing city council to, to spend the money, um, even though it's urban renewal dollars that are earmarked for things like uh, Coliseum renovations and, and you know affordable housing money comes from a different pod, it's, it's, it's still a challenge in this political climate to um, get city council to spend the money, even if it's money spent very wisely. Uh, but we just love the building so much. Uh, you know, I think of only two times in my life, maybe when um, experiencing experiencing a work of architecture has moved me to tears. And uh, the first was about a decade ago when I went to Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. And uh, I think the second time was uh, at that Blazer game I mentioned, where I watched the whole sunset 
over the downtown Portland skyline from my seat. I mean, it's just um, uh, the building is so pure and simple. It's it's just magnificent. Uh, you have a building that is something like the equivalent of about three and a half city blocks in size, but the entire building is standing on just four columns. Like uh, I can look around my shitty apartment here and and see more than four columns in my two bedroom apartment. And uh, uh, you know, and uh, the seating bowl, uh, the ten thousand seat seating bowl, sits completely detached from the glass box that surrounds it. And so, uh, you know, I just think this is uh, a masterwork of American architecture that thankfully also has a role to play in the city's future, but, uh, it's still easier said than done. And I will really only believe it's saved when, when, uh, when the restoration work begins, but, uh, we're not going to stop until that day comes. I mean, do you think people think, I, I don't know what, I think a lot of people, when they think of, uh, you know, preserving architecture, they automatically go back a hundred years. You know, they, they skip, they skip the sixties, the fifties, the forties, maybe even the seventies. And I think, is it 50 years where something can be considered, um, historically, uh, is it 50 years? I think when, when it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think there's, um, it's, I, it's always curious to me because when, when I think, when I think people think of preservation, they just automatically go to, um, you know, Victorian, Victorian era or, you know, Queen Anne homes. And I, I still think there's a lot of, I don't want to say education, but I think, I mean, it, it is historic. It is a beautiful building. And, and how, how do you convince people who think it's, it's just a box? And I think actually somebody said that in an article I read. It's just an ugly box from, you know, the sixties. How, how do we, how do you talk people into that? Something that isn't 150 years old can be significant. It, it's a great question because there, there really is a bit of a disconnect out there in some ways, you know, people think it, uh, you know, the word modern and historic, uh, the words modern and historic are, are kind of mutually exclusive and they, you know, to the, uh, to the untrained ear, they, they do sound like two different things. Something's modern that connotes the future or something's historic that connotes the past. Um, but the, the quote unquote modern movement has been around for, um, something like 80 or 90 years now. And so, uh, um, you know, it really is historic. And, and one thing I've learned even beside, uh, the dichotomy between, you know, sleek glass modern buildings and, and old masonry buildings full of gargoyles and so forth is, uh, it, it even goes beyond that in that, uh, I've learned that societies across, uh, the generations or across history, there's been this tendency of every society to go, you know, this 50 year old building is not so great. We don't need to save this, but this hundred year old building, we've got to save that. Uh, we've got to preserve that. But of course, uh, you and I know that, um, a building never has a chance to become a hundred year old building if it can't pass the 50 year mark. And, and for a long time, the 50 year mark has been a kind of make or break point where um, if a building is going to become threatened, uh, it's often at about that point. And, uh, you know, modernism also can be difficult to assess because after World War II, whether in the United States or, or England or the rest of Europe, we built so many buildings in the first decade or two after World War II, especially in Europe, because so much was destroyed. And uh, there are a lot of bad early modern buildings out there. And, and when, a, when a modernist building is unremarkable or, or, or low quality, um, it's really bad. I think the, the bad modern buildings are the worst architecture because an, an old building uh, that is not so great, at least it still has some ornament to kind of hide behind. But uh, uh, a modern building, when it's uninspired, is 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 pretty ugly. And I think the public understands that on some level. But at the same time, I have watched people um, go through a kind of 
uh, process when they learn about Memorial Coliseum anyway that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, I, I didn't get it at first, uh, but then I went inside the building and I really walked around and I looked at how simple it is and I saw how full of light it was. And then, then the curtain opened and I looked out at the whole downtown Portland skyline and the Willamette River and, and, and now I get it. So I think uh, um, it, it's true that a lot of people in Portland are saying Memorial Coliseum is a masterpiece. You know, what, what are you talking about? Um, but any of those people, uh, I feel like I could take through the Coliseum and they would start to get it. Well, these are the same people in the 1950s who, who torn down all, tore down all those ugly late 1800 homes that were ugly, that were only 50, 60 years old in the 1950s. <laughs> yes, yes. Or the people who tore down the beautiful cast iron buildings on the waterfront in the 1950s to, oh. make, way for, to make way for parking lots, for God's yeah. sake. Parking lots and, and, and really, Portland's got a, a very, some of those buildings along there are so nondescript, they're almost invisible. They just, uh -huh. they just don't have any character to them. Uh -huh. um, so, so I want to talk to you. Um, I've got one more question for you. And I'd like to talk about, um, you know, your, your experience with Portland architecture and um, architecture criticism, criticism in general. I mean, I, you know, a lot of major newspapers used to have a critic on board. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of a rare breed these days. Do you think, you know, online um, blogs and, you know, various, online digital entities are kind of replacing the traditional newspaper architecture critic? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I actually did start uh, uh, an architecture column recently for the Portland Tribune earlier this year. And so I'm getting a taste of it from both ends. And uh, I think the, the world we've created for ourselves is kind of better and worse in a way. Um, you know, it's been really devastating and disappointing to see the way newspapers across America have kind of disintegrated. Uh, and we really have a poster child for that in the Oregonian, which used to be a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper with a really esteemed architecture critic and, and a great art critic and a great film critic. And, and now the Oregonian, like so many papers in America, has dwindled down to a, to a, a, a really embarrassing ghost of its former self. And uh, it's been difficult for me to kind of become a critic just uh, at a time when there aren't any more newspaper critics uh, for architecture. And, and uh, I've had to think on my feet a little bit over the last decade. But at the same time, even if newspapers are disappearing, uh, just as you allude to, uh, there's been an explosion of opportunity uh, in a different sort of way online. And, and that, uh, um, you know, to be able to start a blog uh, is, is, a, is a great privilege. It, it, it may not get as many readers as, as a daily newspaper would, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's fun to be able to kind of be your own boss as a critic and, and to, to write as long as I want or, or to say exactly what I want. And uh, so, um, you know, there's been, a, a, in some ways, a kind of proliferation of opportunity for writers and journalists online, uh, but there's been a loss of opportunity to reach that kind of huge general audience. And so I definitely think something is being lost in that, uh, you know, uh, say you're a fan of architecture and you want to read the criticisms and opinions of someone, uh, uh, whether it's in Portland or another city, you can find people like me in every other city that, that do a kind of combination of online uh, writing and newspaper and magazine work. But uh, uh, the, the people who don't necessarily care first thing about architecture, who are just in the general public and, you know, want to get up in the morning and have their cup of coffee and and read the newspaper. It, it, it's painful to me that those people are missing that exposure to architecture and design nowadays. And, and so, you know, people like my grandparents uh, might have been getting that kind of exposure uh, 
uh, a decade or two decades ago, and, and now they're not. They're just getting this kind of lowest common denominator newspaper with uh, a couple of crime reports and a couple of reports that are um, basically just you know respinning an Associated Press article. And uh, it's sad in that way, but uh, I do think there's been as as much proliferation of opportunity as there's been uh, a dwindling of of media like newspapers. But uh, you know, it's it's still. Uh, a situation that causes me to to miss the past sometimes as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I like to go on the New York Times their um, archives and read. You know, some of the it's interesting to read uh, criticism from the fifties and sixties on some of these buildings that were uh, not liked, but now they're you know now that now they're loved. It's always interesting uh-huh. to go back and see that historical perspective. You know, Huxtable and and and, and those folks. Always- yeah, there was a, a really impressive rigor to what that generation of critics uh, uh, was able to produce. And, and I worry sometimes that when I'm writing blog posts that I'm not living up to that level of, of educational rigor and, and, and succinct writing. And, and uh, you know, when you work for a, a great newspaper, especially one like the New York Times, uh, you have some great editors behind the scenes who are, who are refining what you write and helping you to sharpen your message. And, and uh, when I did used to do some writing for the Oregonian or even for Willamette Week in the past, uh, I really do feel like my editors made my work better. And uh, there are lots of times, embarrassingly frequent times, where I write a blog post and, and it goes live and then I find typos after the fact or I think of a point I forgot to make. And and so there is a kind of rigor to, to newspaper work that um, may be disappearing and I lament that. But at the same time, there's a, there's a greater power in other ways too in that I can um, write as much as I want about one topic and, and I can kind of call the shots as to what I write about and uh, um, not face any kind of opposition from the powers that be. So it's a trade-off for sure. So um, you, you mentioned the New York Times. Can you just walk me through what I'm, I've always wanted to know this? What's what's that process like of, of writing for the New York Times? I love it. And there is more rigor there for sure. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoy, first of all, the privilege, uh, even if it sounds corny, of being able to kind of share stories from Portland with the world. And when I think of writing for the New York Times, I'm thinking of not just New Yorkers reading it, but people all over the world. And uh, um, when I when I write something for them, um, I know it's going to be a longer process. Uh, I know that it's going to go through multiple uh, revisions, and I know that they're going to call me on anything that isn't nailed down in terms of the points I make and can they be attributed and uh, is there a, a factual source? And so I can't just I know that I can't just introduce. Uh, you know, a study or something like that and and not say where it comes from. And and there's no hearsay that's going to be part of that story. And so you realize when you're writing for a publication like that, that it has to be at its best. Uh, Like I'm working on what may be my first Wall Street Journal article right now. And and I'm in a revision process now. And and, uh, I don't even know for sure if it's going to be published. And uh, that's that's, uh, scary for me in, in, in some ways, because I would dearly love to be called someone who's written for the Wall Street Journal. But at the same time, I really respect the rigor they have. And so uh, it's a fun process. It's it's sometimes it's a little bit uh, nail biting. And uh, it used to be really nail biting because I got my start contributing for The New York Times by being what was called a, a news stringer. So in the early to- 2000s, uh, I reported on all kinds of breaking news events when they would happen in Portland. Like basically anytime The New York Times was going to report on something in Portland uh, that was happening, they would have me, you know, kind of get on the scene and start interviewing people before the, until the reporter arrived from Seattle or San Francisco, the staff writer, you know, and so, uh, 
there, there are all these stories from the early 2000s, like a, a helicopter crash at Mount Hood or um, uh, somebody kidnapping and raping uh, one of his uh, neighbors in Lake Oswego. And, and uh, um, even uh, the um, wrongly accused uh, Spanish train bombing uh, uh, suspect that w- came from Portland here and was misidentified as the, uh, as the Madrid bomber. Um, uh, Brandon Mayfield. And, and so, uh, um, especially when I was doing that news reporting in the early 2000s, I really got a sense of how hard it is to be a serious news reporter. And uh, I was all too happy to go back to writing about architecture and design. <laughs> well, very good. Um, Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been fun. I appreciate it. What a treat, John. I've uh, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, appreciate your inviting me on. All right. Take care. You too. If you want more information on Brian's various work, visit PartlandArchitecture.com. For more information on efforts to save the Veterans Memorial Coliseum, visit ColiseumFriends.org. And please visit BuiltBlocks.com for show notes. Be sure to subscribe. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a good one.